Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So what kind of multiple do you think you could get for your business? My guess is you know the answer to that question. You've been at enough trade shows, enough industry events, you've talked to enough of your peers to know that companies like yours in your industry are generally trading at a pretty specific multiple. I think the better question, though, is the number you're multiplying to get to your ultimate valuation. And that number can be more subjective than objective, meaning the profit you're multiplying at the end of the day can be open to interpretation. You know, as a seller, you're going to want to scrub your profit and say, all those things I've been running through my company claiming those are expenses. Well, they're actually not expenses that the company would incur. They were just things that I take personally and happen to run through the company to lower my tax bill. At the same time, an acquirer is going to look at your profit and loss statement and say, ah, yeah, he's been making or she's been making all this profit, but we've got to add back some expenses because under our ownership, this company is going to have some additional expenses. And it's the debate and the back and forth over those adjustments that can often derail the sale of a company. And that's exactly what happened in the sale of Dennis Hart's business. Dennis built Apex Media to a $70 million company, and he walked away from the negotiation table twice over adbacks. To hear the rest of the story, here's Dennis Hart. Dennis Hart, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Good being here. Tell me a little bit about this company, Apex Media. What did you guys do? Apex um, was basically an advertising agency. was classified as an advertising agency. But uh, we started off really as a rep firm, selling time on for television, selling time on television stations, uh, for television stations to the long-form industry, long-form being uh, infomercials and religious clients. And we graduated from that, or I shouldn't say graduated, but we, we branched out after a while, not only became a, a rep firm that sold time, but then we uh, became an agency that now represented the uh, advertiser, the person buying the time, and we became an agency uh, for, for some of the buyers. And beyond that, we, um, we had an edge. Uh, we learned how to trade for time on television. So we were known as um, a company that could buy, sell, or trade media in the long form in the long form industry, which was again was infomercials and uh, religion. And we were very fortunate. Um, we kind of developed right as the industry was developing. We were new with it. The industry was new with it. In particular, the trade business was one that was only um, had, had had history in the short short form spot business and we were the pioneers that took that to the long form business got it, it really- in the early days dennis you actually worked for the tv stations selling i would imagine the time that they couldn't like the, the non-prime times stuff and then you switched to representing the advertiser is that right almost uh we didn't switch we just did both okay and so i'm thinking you know like i think of nordic track or yes. Sham Wow, you know, those kinds of 30-minute long-form infomercials where they're trying to sell something uh, using lots of detailed case studies and lots of time. And, and so those are the kinds of things that, that, uh, that you'd get involved in. Yes. Uh, we, we were heavily involved with um, your, your health and fitness shows. Uh, if you remember, remember the set it and forget it uh, oven 
uh, orange, clean, uh, blue stuff. Uh, some of the we, we were very fortunate. We got uh, hooked up with some of the the bigger buyers in the industry. Got it. And so, how did the business? I mean, as you look back on the trajectory of the time you owned Apex, I mean, were there were there kind of inflection points that you look back on now and said, "Man, that was a really important time in our business in our development." Well, sure. If uh, it goes back to Reagan, um, you know, it was against the law really to, to have long form advertising, and Reagan changed that. He changed the law, and in mid eighties, um, the long form advertising was no longer against the law. And uh, I was stumbling around in the business at that point, and nobody could see it coming. As a matter of fact, when I stumbled onto it, I took it to my boss. Uh, I was working for someone back then, and uh, he looked at it, pooped it, and he said, "This." This thing called an infomercial, he said, a year from now, you won't even remember the, the term. Uh, it's the check that everybody hated to cash because everybody saw it as as the, the blue suede shoe or, or, or snake oil salesman. Uh, but obviously, um, since then, it's it's become it's become just it's, it, it, it it has drifted off to some degree. Uh, it it grew very very quickly, very very large. Until 2008, really. And then um, since 2008, it's been tailing off to some degree for various reasons. And, and you had gotten this business up, I understand, by 2007. Um, you know, at, at its peak, you, you had, it was a $90 million business. Am I, am I getting that right? Uh, at one point, yeah. Actually, at one point, we were, we were pacing uh, more than that. But, um, you know, $90 million was a number that we hit. Um, once or twice, um, you know, we it went something like the first year was eight million, then sixteen, twenty-seven, forty, fifty, and on up. Um, and how did you get then, paid, Dennis? I mean, was did you get a like a, a small piece of the action, or how how, did, how what was your sort of revenue model as a company? Well, it's 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 great that you ask that because it it really was a a, a motivator for me. I. Uh, I came out of the construction business and I was working for somebody else. And once I understood the fact that um, uh, this business uh, was a cash and advance business and you could put your inventory in a hard drive, I became very interested. I I could see where I didn't need a warehouse. I could see where I didn't need equipment. Uh, All I had to do, and I've been in sales all my life, and I saw it as an opportunity to sell my way into the business. Uh, retrieve the inventory, put it into a hard drive, which again is is pretty easy to do, and sell it. And when we sold it, it was cash in advance to the customer. However, it was also cash in advance to whoever uh, I was I was uh, uh, going to place it with. So uh, at the stations, uh, for example. So the TV but, stations uh, didn't give you any any terms. No. Even even no. as a mature business, a ninety million dollar business, you weren't getting. 30 or 60 days to pay? Well, that did change. Um, and and that uh, we were probably the only ones. Uh, we, I made it very, very clear to everybody around me, and I made it very, very clear to the stations that I will not – in our business, what happens is the media companies hold – back in those days, you, there was interest. You can get interest on your money. Um, so media companies would drag the payments. They would get the, the payment from their client. And hang on to it for as long as they can before they sent it out. 
Um, when I got a check from my client, I just I made sure that uh, we had folks already stuffing the checks into envelopes and mailing them right out again. As a consequence, we got a great reputation for paying our bills. And uh, it, it helped us because it, when stations um, didn't get a check from somebody else, they trusted us. And they would call us to bail them out of a jam and, and buy the time that they were holding that they didn't have a client for. But in, in later years, um, pretty much, oh, 70 or 80 percent of our volume ended up being uh, net 30. But even to this day, if you go into the industry, they'll tell you that can't happen. Hmm. What was it that triggered you to want to sell Apex? Um, there's one thing I learned in my life, and it was in the stock market. Um, I, I, maybe I've owned 100 stocks in my life, and um, every one was a winner. However, I made most of them losers because it dawned on me that my timing was bad. Uh, and I got to appreciate the word timing. Um, I focused on timing. And when I got into this, I said to myself that I was going to I was going to grow this company and I wasn't going to I wasn't going to dwell on an exit strategy that was that was ready for me. Uh, not, not, it didn't rest on me. It rest. I was going to make myself ready for when the timing was right. And I had to, I had to kind of uh, push that a, a bit, but still I was very, very, I was very, very concerned and very focused on the timing of, of a sale. And in this case here, I kind of, uh, as, as, as a puppeteer would, would, would control things, I had a, I had a hand in 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 setting up the sale of the company as well. So you, if I can, you know, read between the lines, I'm hearing you say that in 2007, when you went to sell the company, you could see on the horizon that the the long form advertising market was about to crash. I wish I could say yes to that, and I, I can understand why you came to that conclusion, but it was more for other reasons. Uh, I felt I had taken the company or I, I knew I had just so much horsepower and I felt that I had taken the company to a place where the company deserved someone to run it that was uh, had, had far better credentials than I. Um, I didn't see myself as being capable of taking Apex uh, down the road. Um there, there, there was more than one reason, but that that I, I was just very, very concerned with. Um, we we had a, a great reputation. We paid our bills. We developed software. I I call it a mousetrap. Everybody could. Every company should have a mousetrap. Our mousetrap was the fact that we had uh, incredible software. And they're using it to this day. After thirty years, um, they they've tried to uh, recreate it and they can't do it. Um, but they're still using our old Fox, Fox Pro software. Um, so you know, my method was create a, a, a mousetrap, which was the software, and um, watch the timing and um, sell the company when I thought I had taken it to, uh, to the place where I just couldn't be as efficient as I wanted to be. Tell me where um, you, I mean, the timing thing sounds like it's something you've learned. 
as opposed to something that was very natural for you. Was there something in the construction business or a different business that you've owned in the past where you felt like you got the timing wrong or that you maybe rid it over the top, you, you held on too long? I think, John, I think all of us have had that. and I'm not sure if we've all come to grips with it. Um, and where I can illustrate it best is in the stock market. Um, you know, again, almost every stock I've ever fooled with has been a winner. And as I look back, um, I made it a loser because my timing was incorrect. Meaning you held on to it too long. Yes. Or, or I sold it, or I sold it too soon. Um, it was just, you know, both sides of that equation. Um, in, in the, when I was in a construction business, you know, the, the, um, the market could be strong, the market could be weak. And in, in the construction business, if all of a sudden you, you, you developed a couple of dollars and you said, now is the time to make a move and let's say try a flip or, or do something a little bit bigger. You're doing that based on your checkbook. Um, and, that, and that's obviously a consideration. But you need to look at the market and make sure the timing is right. You know, here in Scottsdale, as a matter of fact, or Phoenix or the whole country for that matter, you know, there were there were there were companies that were multi-million dollar companies on Monday and by Friday they were almost broke. Um, the timing was bad. And nobody knows what's gonna happen tomorrow. Uh, except God. Nobody knows what's gonna happen tomorrow. So uh, you can't really tell, but I think you have to find a place within your heart, within your mind, to where when I get to this place right here. I'm happy. And at that point, I'm going to say the timing is right. And if it continues past that, well, that's somebody else's money. Um, but I'm going to time it so that I, I can be happy. I'm not, I'm not going to base it on, on something that I've achieved on the inside of the company internally and then say, for instance, I wasn't going to base it on the, the growth of our software because the growth of our software um, – you know, it still is not done yet. Um, it may never be done. Um, but it's just, it's, it's, it's a timing issue when the time is right and you have to feel it and you have to know it and you go for it. I find this such a fascinating topic because I think people listening to this will be, will be going through and can really identify with this. The question of when to sell is so important. I mean, you could, you could look at it from external measures like, uh, you know, we got an offer. It can be very internal. It sounds like for you, it was very internal. And and talk to me about, you know, you, you fill in the blanks for me. So you're saying, you know, you, you were talking to yourself leading up to it saying, you know, if we get to this point, I'll be happy and I'll know that the timing's right. When you say this point, was that a, a value for the, the, the company that you thought you could get or a revenue no. number? What was this point? Maybe you could define that for us. Um, if I said, if I referred to myself as an engine, as a locomotive, pulling a bunch of freight cars, um, that one engine can just go so far. And I wanted to maximize my efforts um, and know that, that while I was pulling the cars, I was taking them at a good pace in a good direction at the right time. But sooner or later, uh, I was going to run out of coal. I was going to run out of steam. And before I got to that point, now it may have been way before I got to that point, I'm, I don't know, but I was going to do it on a flat spot, not on top of a hill when I was going down, and not in the bottom of a hill when I was going up. I was going to do it when 
when the timing was right. I was going to do it when I could look around and say, okay, number one, I feel inside. I'm comfortable. I'm coming out of this with, with uh, more than I expected. Um, the, uh, the business itself still has some place to go. It can grow. The, the, uh, the, the employees are, can be very happy. But I just don't know that I can continue to take it in this direction. And whoops, well, look at this. Um, and what really happened was um, we were just an unbelievably efficient company. However, my approach was I didn't want to, I, I didn't, while I, I specialize in sales, I hated traveling. And in my business, uh, in order for me to really, really uh, do well for the company, I should have been on an airplane. I should have been flying around, going to New York and Chicago and L.A. and making presentations. And I didn't want to do that. I thought my my media plan is going to be this. I'm going to sit here in, in, in Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm going to do the very, very best job we can for all of our clients. In the time that I spend uh, flying around trying to impress people, I'm going to spend it at this desk doing deals, impressing people. Uh, if I've got to see somebody, uh, I'm going to send them a ticket. And I, I bought a little, a little condominium here on a golf course. Uh, I would send them a ticket and fly them in first class into town and entertain them for a day or two. And so I could entertain them on my terms, not try to bang on their door on their terms uh, while they were checking their emails in their office. Um, and there, there was there was more than one ingredient, but there were several ingredients that I I, uh, I, uh, I just kind of kept track of. And I felt that it was going very, very smooth. It was going very, very – I felt like we had a head of steam. And um, I just didn't know how long I could keep that head of steam up. And I saw an opportunity where others, uh, as a couple of folks in particular, were doing just the opposite that I was. They were flying around. They were getting a lot of business. I was getting enough business with my with my um, way I approached it, with my media plan. But they were getting a, a lot of better business, bigger companies. However, we could produce a lot better. Uh, so what I um, I kind of dropped a um, a thought to a, a wheeler dealer type of person. And I said, you know what? If somebody was smart, they would go to this other company. The name of the company was called Worldlink. They would go to Worldlink and then they would come to us and they would put us together because we had the, we had the, um, we had the engine. Uh, they had the, the uh, they had a better marketing plan. And lo and behold, um, that started to, that started to happen. Um, the guy I, uh, I suggested this to found some VC folks. They came to me first and they said, what do you think? Let's go. They were talking to both companies and I thought we were going in the right direction. However, the other company just bowed out of the deal. And, uh, so the sale went down as far as apex was concerned, except it didn't come together the way I hoped it would. Wow, I've got so many. I've got so many questions on that one, Dennis. So let's let's just go step by step. So you come to the realization um, that it's the right time, and and so you contacted. Uh, you mentioned a excuse Wheeler, me, yeah. excuse me. You know, uh, you were searching for a feeling, and I'm not sure I gave you that feeling correctly. And maybe, maybe, maybe it was when most people would think that we're flying. That there's no way I'm going to sell right now. We are really, really going. Um, that to me was the best time to sell. That's when I had the most to sell. I had to apologize for nothing. I knew I could come out with what I wanted to come out with. 
And I, when I sold this company, my chest was was sticking out a lot. I had I, we we didn't we didn't sell on the back side of the bell curve. We sold. Um, I didn't know if we were at the top of the bell. We happened to be at the top of the bell curve, except I didn't know that then. Um, and I didn't think we we're at the top of the bell curve, but I knew that we still had a head of steam going. And and that's when I wanted to sell the company. It's such, I, an, I hope that, it's such an important yeah, I hope that helps you. No, it does for sure. It's such a, a hard thing to do. Obviously, you're a very disciplined guy because it's incredibly hard to, 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 to go forward with the sale process at the very moment it feels like you should be keeping it. So tell us about that, that process. So uh, 2007, you got the feeling. Um, you mentioned that you, you, you approached a quote-unquote wheeler-dealer type. What, what do you mean by that? A friend in a business, uh, he, he worked for a large conglomerate and broke off onto his own, and he would just travel around and do deals with people. So and, was he uh, a mergers and acquisitions professional? Was that his discipline? No, he, just, he was just a, a broker. He was, he was a broker that um, he trusted us. We trusted him. And uh, I, I, I hired very – in fact, I, I had in, inside salespeople moving our product. But I had no marketing. Um, I should say had no marketing. I had very, very most companies, uh, as we were, would have at least one or two or three people out of the road bringing in new business. I didn't do that. Um, we were a very flat company. Um, I, I, I wasn't filled with vice presidents. I, I, I pretty much, uh, between myself and my daughter Carrie, uh, re- people reported. Uh, we had about fifty people, fifty-five people at one point. Uh, and, and, and many companies like that would would have tiered vice presidents. Sure, but what does uh, that what does that have to do with this Wheeler Dealer guy? If you want to drag us back to this, uh, well, he he, um, he he people like him enjoy doing business with us. We had many people like him because of because of our setup. Um, and and I, I I didn't I didn't have salespeople I was selling. I relied on people like brokers to go out and find me business and bring it to me. In, in that process, he would find some day-to-day business, but during those conversations is when I suggested to him that he should find somebody uh, with the money and get some, some venture capital people and to look at both us and this other uh, company and take advantage of the economies of scale and put us together. If that really, if we could, if we could have done that at that point, it would have been, it would have been great. But um, it, it, it got half done. So where did the, the where did the deal go from there? So you you put the bug in this guy's ear that if we brought some VC money and potentially the WorldLink guys together, we'd have a, something really magical. Talk right. to us about you know how it evolved from there. Well, they sent me an LOI letter of intent. And, Sorry, uh, WorldLink sent you a letter of intent. No, I'm sorry. Um, the VC company. The, 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 um, actually, it was who wasn't? It? it was the, it was Cross Media. Uh, it, you know, I forgot. It was Cross Media now or the VC company? It's probably the VC company. Um, no, 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 no. It was Cross Media. They they set up Cross Media, and Cross Media sent me an LOI, um, and they and they actually introduced more than one VC. Uh, source to us. At first, they started with one company, then another. I think they ended up with a third one. Um, and um, you know, the deals step by step started to go, on, go down at that point. And they were talking to both WorldLink and myself, but along the way, WorldLink um, stepped out of the deal. And but, cro- oh. tell me about Cross Media. What what was what was their business? 
Well, uh, they, they actually, the two gentlemen who worked for one of my competitors, who uh, unbeknownst, and, and again, this broker I was talking about um, floated the country, and he could see, he knew the other two guys wanted to start their own company. So he actually went to them, and they went to the VC people. Um, it was a lawyer out of, uh, a lawyer for a firm, one of my competitors, who, who was an on-staff attorney, plus one of their vice presidents uh, hooked up together, and they decided they were going to uh, do a roll-up. So Cross Media was really just a made-up company. It didn't have yes. 25 years of operating experience. No. It was a made-up company to, to acquire you and potentially some other folks in your industry. When they acquired us, they were just some paperwork uh, that was put together to start acquisitions, and we were the very first acquisition. Interesting. And so what did you think of their letter of intent? Um. Well, the uh, you know I had never done anything like this before, and the uh, I was a little bit off center because part of the letter said I couldn't discuss it with anybody, um, and they were very very firm on you know my daughter Carrie could know about it, and my attorney could know about it, and there was only two or three or four people in in my uh, that I could even discuss it with. None of my employees. Um, I felt a little bit uncomfortable with that because, you know, there's probably opinions that I, I probably could have used, um, maybe try to get a second or third bid. But uh, along the same time, what happened was a couple of other companies, a couple of media companies were in the same situation. They were, look, they were being looked at and they were negotiating for uh, seller companies and Two or three of those cases, the deals fell through. And because the market knew what was going on, the value of their companies decreased substantially just because it, because the industry knew that they were up for sale. The industry knew that they were being looked at. And more than once, they knew that the potential buyers backed off. So I became a lot more comfortable with the fact that it's a lot better to keep it under your hat. And those companies to this day, I think, still suffer for it. Because somehow the deal got out among their employees? Yeah, they just, they, they, they were held at a very high stature before. And after they were, after the deals fell through a couple, three times, um, they just, they, they lost their luster. Hmm. Interesting. So Cross Media uh, puts this letter of intent in front of you. And it was a little off-putting because you, you weren't able to talk about it with your employees. Um, how'd you feel about the price they were offering? Uh, I truthfully, in the, along the way, as I said, when I would think about it and timing and I had a bigger number in mind, um, and I, I, I had to learn, um, really understand EBITDA. I had to understand multiples. Um, I think I was one jump ahead, uh, in this business, evidently, uh, as a roll up, um, Six, seven, eight times a multiple is is is, is the multiples are are um, pretty much um, accepted. But after they put together whatever they're going to put together, three or four, five, six their their companies, then you're looking at a ten or twelve multiple when they put everything together. And my mind was, you know, at the ten or twelve uh, multiple, um, thinking that that's the position I was in. And had to learn that that's not where I was at. I was in the 
in the, in the area of, you know, six or seven or eight in that area. And ended up, we ended up being at 7.162 or something like that. Got it. So it ended up at 7.1. What was the initial LOI? Was it at the 7.1 or was it lower at seven than 7.1? It's been a while. I'm not sure that um, I can answer that. Okay. Um, nope. I, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure, I'm not sure they gave me a, um, a multiple at that point. I think they just shot a number at me of eight to 10 million possibly, but I, I can't recall for sure. Okay. Got it. Got it. And for the folks listening, if, if, if the number, if the EBITDA acronym is confusing, it's simply earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really your net profit before taxes and, and after the accountant has a chance to kind of express it considering things like depreciation and amortization. So, uh, you know, your offer was in that sort of six to eight times, ultimately scored out at 7.1 times EBITDA. Now, Dennis, was that all up front or did you have an earnout component to that or what, how, how did I that got happen? I got 95% up front and they held 5% for a year. Wow, that's a great that's a great deal. Was that tough to get, or or was that a lot of negotiation on your behalf, or was that the initial offer in the LOI ninety five percent up front? Negotiations initially were probably what you would expect. However, <laughs> um, more than once during negotiations, I um, I backed. Well, I told them I didn't want to sell the company. Uh, and I, I, I knew they wanted to, the, the, we were their first acquisition and the, the, they weren't going to hold still for not buying the company. I, I, that was pretty obvious. So I think on two occasions, I, I tried to bow out of the deal. However, my daughter and, and, uh, a gal who I'll call my CFO now, um, were very, uh, um, aggressive about talking to the other side saying that they wanted to have the company sold. And they basically put the package back together again. Basically, um, they, they, they acted as the catalyst. My daughter, Carrie in particular, uh, said, don't worry about it. I'll get my father to sell. Just let's, let's do this. And when I saw that happening, um, I was, I was very, very eager to say no. And they were very, very, they got very, very eager to say yes. And so what were some of the deal points that came up that made you want to walk away from the negotiation table? Chargebacks. Um, that was a, a chargeback for the folks who will be listening. Um, thank God I own the company as an individual um, or, or, or loan. And, uh, you know, I may have, have had an insurance policy or a charge card or um, some things geared around family, some, maybe some, some numbers that weren't directly related to the business. Uh, I had my son on the payroll, but you know, uh, in in many many cases, uh, an owner will have, uh, and I know this because the way they presented it to me was they, they sat down and said, "Look, you know, we know what you think. we know what goes on. Now you got to go in here, and you've you've got to pull out all of the costs that are in here, which are not really directed towards the company." And that got to be um, there was lots of points of contention there. And, uh, and you were arguing that those were costs that that the company should have borne? Or were you worried or were you saying, no, no, those are personal expenses and I'm just running them through the company? Like which side of the well, argument the, were you? The, 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 the higher the EBITDA, the more I got. Sure. It was a multiple. So uh I wanted to keep some of those numbers 
out of sure. the out because then my EBIT would be higher and I would get more money. So for practical people listening to this, uh, if you're thinking about this is this is the adjustment stage when you're when you're in yes. negotiation, you're adjusting the EBITDA, and you as a business owner may say to the acquirer, uh, you know, well my twenty thousand dollars that I spent on golf last year, you know, that's really a personal expense. So should we we should pull that out of the expenses and there fatten up our EBITDA line by twenty thousand? And the the buyer is going to look at you and say, no, no, time out. You know, we've got business development expenses. We're going to have to woo potential clients. We're going to have to entertain them. That that golf membership is is very much a natural sales marketing expense. Why why would we pull it out? And you hit it. Then those are those are some of the negotiations. So so for you, Dennis, you had a number of those co- that came up throughout the process. Um, and 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 were any of them that you thought in retrospect that you think back on now and you think, wow, I, I just I have I can't believe that was an issue. Oh, I really hadn't given a second thought uh, when all was said and done. I think the deal went down. It was fair for both sides. Got it. Uh, it's interesting. We, we, we could have we could have argued that we we could still be arguing about it and have gotten nowhere. But it was it was good for them and it was good for me and I'm happy with it. It's interesting that Carrie played a role. Your daughter here. I mean, why was she so keen that you you, you to sell the business? <laughs> um, she's my daughter, and she uh, now. She wasn't next in line because she was my daughter. She was next in line because she fought her way to that point. Uh, when I hired Carrie, it was th- she was a waitress and I needed somebody to answer the phone. I had no idea she was as talented as she was. Um, and there was always this thing between us where um, where she she. she she didn't see me as really understanding who she was. Uh, well, anyways, so there was there was just um, many, many things that happened where she would step up uh, and, and she, she, she would step up very, very professionally. I ran the business as a ma and pa type of organization. Like I said, I had no vice presidents and no – in fact, Carrie didn't even have a title. Nobody had a title. It was, it was my opinion that if you wanted a cup of coffee, go get it. If you want a copy, go to the copy machine, go to the copy machine. You want to type a letter, go do it. Uh, but I wasn't going to pay, you know, a, a half a dozen gals to run around and, and clean up after the guys. Um, I hope that doesn't sound incorrect, but but uh, I should say the assistants. Um, and she, uh, c- c- Carrie will not let grass go under her feet. And I think she saw where the father, the, the, the father-daughter relationship, while it was so good, uh, had its limitations. And she wanted others to come into the company that were more professional, that could take the company in a, in a, in a, in a larger direction where she could participate in that. How did you tell your employees? Oh, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> um, well, it was on August 1st, 2007. We signed a deal uh, at, at, at the lawyer's office. We drove over to the office. The new owners uh, were on both sides of me. And I just told him, and everybody's jaw dropped. Now, uh, another thing that was happening in the meantime, which I never did know until afterwards, was there were three employees of the company who were negotiated with uh, another company that we did a lot of business with, very friendly company, very friendly competitor. And they were putting together a package where they were going to come buy us out. So when I stood up and 
said to them the company was sold, it was it was quite a shock. So they were they preparing were. to do a management buyout. Yes. And whatever happened to that group? Did they? They got upset and left about uh, six months later. Describe the emotions that you felt, if you could, Dennis, when you were sharing the news with your employees, these family members, and, and those that you treated as if they were family members, it sounds like. Uh, yeah. How, how, how did that feel, describing them? Um, that period of time, for as much as you want to dress it up, it was like a death in a family. Um, for as close as I was to a lot of the employees, uh, there was a definite change in everybody's behavior. Um, I was a traitor. Um, it, it wasn't pretty. It, it wasn't pretty at all. Um, you know, those, that was probably the worst of the, of the, of the whole thing. Uh, it, it, it all became better as months turned into, as weeks, weeks turned into months, turns into years. It, it all, it all ended up being okay. But during that period of time, it was not pretty. And, I, and looking back, I don't know, I, I wouldn't know another way to handle it. So you felt like you did the right thing in not telling them up until the acquisition had closed? Well, by law, I couldn't. I mean, I'd be subject to litigation if I did. I mean, I, I had no choice. Um, but again, um, if I did and work it out in the field and the deal fell through, then my company would have lost its luster like I indicated to you others have. And we all would have suffered at that point. So it's just one of those things that's it's part of the deal. You've got to... Uh, you know, you, you, you've got to understand the situation and, and swallow it and, and uh, you know, deal with it. You use the word traitor. That's a powerful word. They never accused me of that, but I think I felt that. You know, because they, it was a family. Everybody was there for the long haul. Uh, we really treated the employees well. Um, and we would get, I would get calls constantly from competitors, from folks in the business who were in between jobs. They all wanted to come to work for us. And that became uh, an issue in itself. I couldn't hire everybody. And if you said no to somebody that you didn't want them, they'd go to work for one of your potential clients. And that wasn't any, I had to figure out a way around that. And that took a while to figure that out. Um, so it, you know, you're, you're walking a tightrope. Uh, but I mean, we were, the, 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 one of the biggest assets I had was the attitude of the folks working for us uh, in the field because that came through on the phone um, and just people wanted to do business with us and everybody in the office felt like they had a job for life. And I, and I, I frankly took them there. I mean, I, it was my fault. I, uh, I, uh, that's, that's, that's the way I operated the company. So this is now almost 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about it with the passage of time? Are those relationships repaired? Do you still feel some degree of guilt? To some degree, the uh, what helped me actually was in 2008, the bottom dropped out. Um, and what I told the employees, and it was the truth, that I didn't think I had the horsepower to, uh, to really guide the company in the right direction. And as it turned out, the... Um, you know, the bottom fell out and they could see where um, most companies were having lots of difficulties. I really don't know how I would have, how I would have fared in that. In, in retrospect now, 
I think I'd have done okay, but um, it was easy to believe back in back then that I might have had more serious problems than than I had. And the employees saw that. They say, "Wow, you know, I can understand now why Dennis did what he did. It's a good thing he did because look at what's going on now. We have more dollars behind us. We have more. Uh, we have, just have a, a bigger base. Um, so that that helped temper it." Um, Another thing that I'm not sure they any ever forgive, forgave me for was that we would take 15 – the 401k. I never permitted anybody – nobody participated. We just – we wrote a check every year and put the maximum amount of money you could put into their 401ks. Uh, they never had to put in a dime. And um, they – I'm not sure – and then when that stopped and, and the world became a reality – it took lots of years for the folks there to really, really forgive me for that. Interesting. Because they could have said, instead of, you know, not forgiving you, they could have addressed that anger towards the new owner and said, well, you know, Dennis was a generous guy that these new owners aren't. Uh, well, it, it got so bad that uh, they couldn't do it naturally because it was, it, was, it was against the law. But uh, some of them got so upset that they, they talked about getting a class action suit against me to see that I would continue to <laughs> to fund it. Uh, it, it, it. We went from being a very, very close-knit group to um, having some real issues. And, and, and today, you know, th those folks and I are, are fine. We, we, we all figured it out. We all grew through it. Everything is fine. Got it. Got it. How has life been for you now? I mean, obviously you got a big check in the bank. Uh, you, how has that changed your life? Uh, you know, all these years afterward. Um, well, obviously, you know, I, I'm in financially a lot better situation now than I would have been. Um, it really hasn't changed my life other than that. You know, we live in the same house. We do the same things. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not one to go out and, you know, buy flashy cars or things like that. If anything, um, it's created a little bit of um, an issue with my wife and myself because we should be doing more. And uh, in terms of, and I'm still working, we should be doing more and uh, in, in, in acting like retired folks. And we don't. And we look at each other and can't understand why. Uh, and, and that's a conversation here daily, almost. But, um, you know, it, it's, but I've been able to help a lot of other people do a lot of other things, which is, which is neat. But, um, you know, it's the, uh, the, the, I can basically, you just heard the good news. The bad news is the folks who, who bought the company right into the ground, um, six years after they butchered it, they sold it to another company and they finished it off. And a year ago, well, this past December 31st, they closed the company down. Uh, they just shut it down. Um, other than one small section of the company, which is a piece that I still maintain. Uh, there's one client that we have that I've been with for 15 years. And uh, I'll stay there as long as the client stays with the company. So they've just kept myself and two, other, two or three other folks there to pay and maintain that account. But the operations of everything else in the company, they just shut down. How does that make and, you feel? Um, not good. Not good at all. Some of, some of them, you know, they, they've all scattered, and, and, um, and I'm still okay with them. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's a hard pill as well. You know, we, you're, <clears throat> it's your baby. It's your baby. 
Uh, just yesterday, my wife and I were out at a restaurant. We bumped into a, a one of the gals that worked for us, and um, you know, she, she's encouraging me to. I talked about having a uh, kind of a picnic with all the old Apexers, and they, they all would love to do it. You know, it was it was a really really good experience for a lot of us and and they, they all have come to the realization and understand that that was then this is now and life isn't that way anymore um but it's it's still hard to you know for them and myself both it's hard for me to see them struggle um but then again i don't know that i could have made it any better if i held into the company i just don't i just not sure that i could have dennis hart thanks very much for joining us my pleasure sir Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.